Hi, Foxies. The episode you're trying to listen to is right around the corner, but first, we need your help. You may have noticed that there are no ads during the Fox and the Foxhound. We prefer this, being ad haters ourselves, but we need your help to keep it that way. If you love this show, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash the Fox and the Foxhound. We have Patreon tiers starting at just $1 a month. And not only will you get fun extra content and an unedited cut of every episode two days early, you'll be directly responsible for keeping the show going in all of its ad-free glory. Thanks to all of our existing patrons, past patrons, and hopefully future patrons. Enjoy the episode. Hello, friends. Before we jump into this week's episode, two quick reminders. Number one, The Fox and the Foxhound contains adult language and content, and if that's not your thing, this may not be a good fit for you. Two, The Fox and the Foxhound contains mild spoilers. Although my esteemed co-host and soon-to-be husband is reading the series for the first time, he has undoubtedly absorbed some plot points from pop culture and from sharing a home with yours truly for the past several years. So if you're completely new to the Harry Potter world, keep this in mind. We'll do our best to give a quick warning if we're about to say something spoilery. And now, The Fox and the Foxhound. Get some! Hi, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. It's our very first episode, which is very exciting. Here we go. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to introduce ourselves a little bit. And just talk about what we're doing, and then we'll jump into it. Do you want to start, or do you want me to start? I always want you to start. My name's Amanda. I'm a Hufflepuff. I am a cat mom. I'm a voiceover artist. And I am a huge Harry Potter fan. And I'm engaged to my co-host. Hi, I'm Kevin. Um... I am also, I mean, I don't know if Amanda mentioned that she's an actor. I'm also an actor. Uh, that's how we met, is through theater. I'm also a big theme park fan, roller coaster enthusiast, disc offer. Uh, what else? Super cool guy. Super cool guy, definitely. He's one of my favorites. I like him. Uh, so we've been together for over nine years. Yep. And we are getting married in a few months. Yes. How far away are we now? We are... I can't count. We're about four months away. That's, oh my God. Almost to the day. That's really close. Sweet. I'm not panicked. I'm excited. Me either. I think everything's going to be perfectly smooth. (laughs) I can't tell if you're being serious. When did we first start talking about doing this? We were having dinner at that restaurant that's not even open anymore that had the truffle fries. I want to say maybe it was on an anniversary or it was on a date or something. I can't yeah, really remember. Yeah, a couple years ago, though, yeah. maybe, somewhere around there. So we started talking about doing a podcast because Kevin, Kevin here, my sweet cheeks, has never, ever, ever read the Harry Potter series. Nope. Which is interesting that we, we're engaged because it's a really big part of my life. So he's, you know, very graciously agreed to embark on reading this series now you have seen like a a couple of like i think you've seen the first two movies in their entirety a while ago and you've seen pieces of other like how much have you seen i've seen the first movie probably three times the Mm. second movie twice and pieces of the third movie several times and then i've seen bits and pieces of 
every movie just from you watching it right. on the weekends. Which is often. You know, as we mentioned, we're getting married soon. And this is something that, as I said, is a really, really, really big part of my life. I'm I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. It's I've got a Harry Potter tattoo, for God's sake. It's it's a big part of my day-to-day living. And with Kevin reading this series for the first time as an adult, it just seems like there are probably some lessons to be learned. You know, we're about to embark on a life together. This is, I mean, a little biased over here, but this is a series that I think holds like essentially the key to being a good human and the key to happiness in general. So I think that we're going to learn a lot from each other in our reactions to the series. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's going to be interesting, not only diving into this story, which has permeated pop culture for all of these years, and I've never even scratched the surface of it really, but to me, it will be discovering my soon-to-be wife. Wife beast. And why you love it so much. And it's True. probably one of the biggest gaps in understanding each other. We know each other so well, and we know why we both like the things that we like. Yeah. And I don't know that I really fully understand why it grips you so much and why it grips so many people so much in an almost religious fervor. Yeah, it, it can feel a little religious. I think you're going to see it. I guess my question for you is, I mean, do you think you're going to like it? Do you think you're going to enjoy this kind of story? Yeah, I think I'm going to like it. I like the young adult reader type of stuff. I still read, you know, Indian in the Cupboard. I still read Little House on the Prairie. He does love Little Um, House. (laughs) You know, I haven't started on the Goosebumps books, but I kind of want to. You've never read Goosebumps? Oh, Jesus Christ. So, you know, you think you're going to like it. I agree. I think you are going to like it. I, you know, think that I know you well enough to know the things that are going to speak to your soul. Now, I don't know the specific moments, the specific characters, the specific plot points that you're going to really connect with. And I anticipate some really heated debates between the two of us about some, because I have opinions about this, in case you didn't know. I've noticed. Yeah, yeah. You've probably picked up on that. So our commitment to you is we're going to record consistently, as as consistently as humanly possible. Yeah, we hope that we're both going to stay living in the same house for the foreseeable future until death. Right. You know, until that part. Until death do us part. Part. (laughs) Until death do us party, bro. So we've talked about our expectations of going through the HP universe. Sure. What are your expectations as far as us being married? So we've been together almost a decade. We've lived together for about six years. What do you think is going to change? I don't think much is going to change. I feel like I've been married to you for a while. I just don't anticipate much changing, especially in our day-to-day. I mean, I think that marriage is going to be really exciting and kind of this like extra firm footing that we'll be on. But I don't think that what we're putting on that footing is going to change. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So do you have any fears for us embarking on the Harry Potter journey together? And do you have any fears of us embarking on the marriage journey together? So I have no fears about embarking on the marriage. I'm not just saying that. I really don't. I have a lot of fears about the Harry Potter journey. Like what? I have fears about the stance you're going to take on certain characters that I feel very, very strongly about, either positive or negative. 
And I'm not going to get into that here because I will alienate like a third of our potential audience if I share my true opinions just yet. Like I want them to to like us first. I think my my greatest fear is you're going to get to the end of the series and you're going to be like, I don't really see what the big deal is. I don't really see why you like this so much. You would never be that way, though, because one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this is because you approach everything with this openness and this kind of acceptance. And you're also like really, really cool about fandoms, even if they're fandoms that you don't belong to. Like you're really accepting of fandoms. And I think that you're also kind of fascinated by fandoms. Yeah, I'm fascinated with subcultures, I think, um, anthropologically. I love to see people find the things in their life that serve as totems and guides to their lives because it always tells you something about them. And it harkens back to probably you and I's greatest love, which is storytelling. When I was rereading the chapters we're covering today, which we're going to get to in a second, I found myself noticing these little things that I had never, I can't say like I never noticed them. I feel like I noticed them at first, but I've since forgotten about them or, you know, whatever. And and I feel like this is actually a really good time for me to mention something. So Kevin's reading these books for the first time, but I'm also kind of doing a first. So I have... ADHD. (laughs) And it's always been really hard for me to read. I can read. Look, something shiny. No, like now I'm legit distracted. It's like for years, it's been hard for me to read. Like I'm a proficient reader, but I will just read the same thing over and over and over again and not get any meaning from it because it's like the sound of the ceiling fan and the cat jumped on the bed and I remembered what I needed to get from the grocery store and etc. So I have actually only ever read, I'm doing air quotes, read the Harry Potter series, which I have done many, many times through audiobook while I'm driving. Because with driving, you can't really get distracted, right? So that was always a time when I could just like listen to the book and read it. But I have challenged myself that for this journey and this project that we're undertaking, I'm actually reading the books and I'm reading the UK editions. And we'll tell you which editions we're reading so that you can follow along. And I'm already noticing differences. So I'm kind of engaging in some firsts myself. Let's talk about format. Let's talk about our format every week. Kevin is going to be driving the the boat in terms of what chunk of text we're coming up with. Already really feel like we should come up with a different word besides chunk because I really hate that word. You know, I kind of, you just reminded me, in one of the movies, I think there's like a spooky boat with a lantern on it. And there's like a guy with a stick that's like pushing you, pushing Harry through something. They're sailing through like the dead cave of the swamp or something like that. I'm I'm not, I can't confirm or deny. I just had like a weird HP flashback to one of the movies where there's like. Where it was just on in the background. Rowing of a boat through a dark, watery cave. I feel like the Potterheads listening are just like, oh my God, that's totally blank, 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 blank. We'll get there in many, 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 many pages. But what have you agreed to do? What I've agreed to do is not read past where we've agreed to stop. And so basically, like, he's going to be reading these books, and he's just going to listen to his instinct, 
and he's going to go, this is a good place to stop. And then he's going to close the book and he's not going to read ahead. And how I'm going to do that is I'm pretty much when I get when I finish a chapter and I go, holy crap, I can't wait to flip this page. Yeah. And start this second chapter. That's when I'm going to stop. Oh, I want I everything it. to be a cliffhanger. I want you to be excited. So I'm very supportive of this method. I think that's great. Yeah. So you can guarantee that every time we're recording this, this is as far as Kevin has read. So he has not read ahead. He doesn't have he doesn't have future knowledge outside of, like he said, the stuff he's picked up in you know the first couple of movies, which were a while ago that you saw them, and the little pieces of the further movies that he's seen. And hearing your friends talk about it, and, and going to yes. Wizarding World, and living in the world. Just being a human being in the world. Correct. Yeah. So let's talk about the editions that we're using. So like I said, I'm using the UK edition. So excuse me, I am currently reading Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, not the Sorcerer's Stone. I am reading the Bloomsbury edition. And this is the one with the illustrations by Johnny Duddle which I think might be the most English name I've ever heard. Johnny Duddle. Oh, yes. Howdy-do. Tally-ho. Well, fold my knickers and call me Johnny Duddle. (laughs) And I'm reading, um, let's see, this is a Scalactic Press, Arthur A. Levine books, illustrations by, probably saying this wrong, Mary Grandpre. Yeah, that sounds about right. Is that any relation to Arthur Levine, your roller coaster guy? I don't know, but it's kind of freaking me out. It's we'll kind get of, there. It's kind of a little weird. We are starting today with chapters one through three of Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone. We're not going to do a plot point by plot point run through for you. We're kind of assuming that you guys have either read these books or you're reading along with us. So what we're going to do is... Read the first paragraph and the last paragraph, or the first set of sentences and the last set of sentences, just to give you kind of bookends of of where we're starting and where we're finishing. And and obviously today, the beginning is a little bit easy. Do you want to do the beginning or the ending of our section? I'll do the beginning. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. They don't hold with nonsense. So we ended with the whole shack shivered. Cue the B-52s. The whole shack shivered. The whole shack Shack. shivered. (laughs) That's, I'm sorry. No, that's the talking heads. The whole shack shivered and Harry sat bolt upright staring at the door. Someone was outside knocking to come in. So at this point in the plot, this is they are on, they being the Dursleys, including Vernon, Petunia, and Dudley, and Harry on an island on the rock in the middle of the sea. And it is Harry's 11th birthday. And there's a knock at the door. He's counting down to the second. And as soon as his birthday hits, the door knocks. It's so sad. Great cliffhanger, too. It's such a great cliffhanger. But just poor sad Harry. So I thought, can we talk about the Dursleys? Can we ever? As a concept, as a family. Okay. We got your guy Vernon. Described as a beefy man, which uh, this is one thing I don't know if you know about me. I hate the adjective beefy. It makes me want to vom. It's like biting into like a piece of like fatty gristle and some chili or something. It's beefy. I can't, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to I'm going to throw up on episode one of this podcast. It's just, oh, my God. But I mean, it's a pretty good adjective for for Vernon. So Vernon and Petunia 
have a little boy, Dudley, little angel, just a sweet, sweet boy. Yeah, he's a little chubby blonde kid. He looks like a beach ball with hair. I thought you were going to say he looks like a beach boy with hair. <laughs> God only knows what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he might look like a beach boy. I don't know. You know, you've got your kind of mental image of little Dudley, little sweet, angelic Dudley. What is your general objective before I start giving you my thoughts? What do you, what do you make of the Dursleys? What's weird to me about the Dursleys is that their abuse of Harry is deliberate. Yes. It's not (gasps) just neglect. It's not like Harry, there's these two people and they're kind of scumbags and they're drunk all the time and they don't ever clean the house and they don't ever do anything. So when this kid comes to live with them, they're like, ah, you can live like our son, just sleep on the dirty clothes over there. No, they seem to have a well-kept house. They work. They seem to pay their bills. They have a kid who they shower with affection and money and toys and things. And their abuse of Harry, for some reason, speaks back to some sort of relationship that Aunt Petunia had with Harry's mom, right? Harry's mom was Petunia's sister. Correct. Yes. Yeah. There are a couple of... I'm so... Like, this is why we're getting married. Because, yes, there are a couple of examples of this. Of this, like actual intention so number one you know they get the they start getting these letters and they're addressed to harry in the cupboard under the stairs and so then what do they do they give him a bigger room because they're afraid they're being watched which means they know that what they're doing is fucked up yes right so then there's this other example, and this is something that has always struck me about the Dursleys, and we'll see more examples of this in the series, the birthday presents that the Dursleys usually give to Harry. So here's directly from the book, my edition. Of course, his birthdays were never exactly fun. Last year, the Dursleys had given him a coat hanger and a pair of Uncle Vernon's old socks. Which is, if they hated the kid... Don't give him anything for his right, birthday. Right. To give him that means they're constantly fucking with him. Yes, it's They're constantly being like, here, you want a birthday present? Here's a coat hanger. Yes. You want a room? Here's a spider-filled cupboard yes. underneath the stairs. You want a school uniform? I'll just dye your cousin's old crap, and you can put that on. Yeah. The fact that they go out of their way to deliberately make his life hard is sadistic it's really strange it is and you know like i always thought of the dursleys as being you know if you're if you divide the list of characters in the harry potter series into good guys and bad guys like the dursleys are always on the bad guy side of that equation but i truly think there are bad guys in this series that are far more redeemable than this family or than at least vernon and petunia which brings me to this point dudley tantrum throwing ridiculous Dudley how much do we blame him for his behavior it's his he's a spoiled brat he's a product of his parents yeah I feel sorry for Dudley I kind of do too because like in the in the pie chart of responsibility for his behavior I feel like Dudley's pie piece is before I started this reread was very small but it's gotten even smaller. Because, like, what's his reference point? What he sees his parents do to his cousin every day 
is so disgusting and abusive, how could you even remotely expect him to be anything except a shithead? Yeah. And it kind of throws back to the fact that she, when she, the author drops you into the story. She drops you into, here's how this kid came to live at this house, and she drops you off in the middle of his crappy upbringing. Yes. It's kind of like learning that Batman's parents were killed. Right. This is the beginning of your misery. This is the beginning of the hero's story. This is their small beat down thing that they have to come up from. But what I really want to talk about with the Dursleys, okay. and if this is jumping ahead too much, you let me know. Okay, I will. Is that it's almost like this part of their family was in the mafia. Okay. And they had this kid that was like Don Corleone's kid, right? It's <laughs> like Michael Corleone has come to live at their house. And they're like, oh, great. We got to keep this kid like... Sure. We have to keep him down or trouble's going to find us. Now, when Harry starts being contacted by the school through all these letters, yeah, the dad says, what's his name again? Vernon? Vernon. Vernon says, we're not going to have one of those in our house. Yes. He is terrified. He's like, yes. they're watching us. We're going to move him to this other room. And then when Harry gets the second letter, it's like... H. Potter, the smallest room in the house. Yes. Boom, we still know where he is. Exactly. And you can tell that Vernon ends up, he actually is more afraid than Petunia is. Petunia's yes. like, maybe we should just ignore him. If we don't respond, they'll eventually go away. It's not that yeah. big of a deal. This dude is terrified. And what I want to know is like, what do they know that we don't know? What do they right. know about the magical world? I'm not sure that from watching the first movie or two that I have any clue of what Petunia and Vernon actually know or don't know about gotcha. Lily and the wizarding world and all of that stuff. So here's what I'll tell you. You could have watched all eight movies and known them front to back and you still would not have this knowledge. This is book only knowledge, in oh, my wow. opinion. You will get the answer to that. It's not going to happen for a really long time, but you will have answers to this. That's as much as I can say. And it's the, but the fear is there. Like there is, this is a group of people that you don't want to mess with kind of thing. Yeah. But there's also this othering. Oh my that's God. That's going on. It's those people. It's everything that's different. And I love how she sets it up. So at the very beginning, Vernon goes to work. He's a cat reading a map. <laughs> yeah. Looks back. Well, that's not right. He looks back. Oh, it's a cat reading a street sign. It must have just been my imagination. And then he sees people in robes. What the hell's going on here? The author sets up from the very beginning that Vernon and the Dursleys are very much stuck in their own culture. Yes. What is normal? What yes. is a normal day? What is a normal kid? What is a normal life? What is a normal job? And anything outside of that terrifies the crap out of them. It's also fear-based. And they're even afraid of each other within their own little family as well, because like there's this moment and I'm not going to flip through the pages and find it right now, but there's this moment during the letters. It's, so it's in chapter three. I know that much. And Petunia, like you said, Petunia is not quite as immediately terrified of the course of events. It almost seems to me she's more terrified of Vernon's reaction to the letters. So like there was at one point Vernon like freaked out about another letter, you know, making it to their house. 
And the sentence is that she had to run and get him a brandy. Like that kind of absolute, like she had to do this. They're so afraid of each other. When Dudley throws a tantrum that he doesn't have the number of presents he thinks he should have, they immediately, immediately, they don't just buckle. There's this fear reaction and, oh, and we're going to get you two more today, which is interesting. And I'm so glad you said the thing about the othering, because once again, at the risk of repeating myself, this is why I'm marrying you, because this was another huge point, discussion point I wanted us to cover. I think I can say with reasonable authority that until this reread, I always thought of the Dursleys, yes, as as shitty people, but I often kind of thought of them as like set pieces in Harry's life, right? Like they had their place in propelling the story forward, but sort of the same way that like the chair the hero sits on has its place, right? However, there were a couple of moments I noticed this time where they are such an allegory for not just the rest of the series and people that Harry will encounter even within the magical world, but also the world we live in currently, which is othering. So there is a sentence or yeah, a sentence on in my edition, it's page two. It's literally the second page of the first chapter. This boy was another good reason for keeping the Potters away. They didn't want Dudley mixing with a child like that. And I found myself when I read it, I just thought about the word mixing. And like, you know, I think about here in in the South, I, I doubt this is limited to the South, actually. But, you know, people will say if someone's biracial or multiracial, what do they call them? They're mixed. They're mixed. You know, it's this really, there's some really ugly connotations, at least in the U.S., with the term mixing or mixed. Like it's it's always. And then there's also, it's him mixing with people like a mixer. Right. It's socializing with these people. Yes. They even bring class into it yeah. because Dudley's going off to a private school. Right. But Harry's going to go to a public school. And the public school things are this way. And at the private school things are this way. They have sticks. The fact that she sets all this up in this really any 10-year-old kid could understand this. Yeah. It's kind of just like, once upon a time, there was this family that lived in this house, and they were total dipshits, <laughs> and they were all racist. Yeah. But she doesn't say that. Right. She tells us this story about the Dursleys. And I'm really like, glad she didn't just put crap. it that way, because, you know. And what's interesting to me, too, is that she chose to put us in the human world yeah. Before she's putting us in the magical Isn't world. Isn't that great? So that we can see the fallibility and insecurities, et cetera, of humans before she takes us and we explore those same things about the wizarding world. Right. Because as we know in the wizarding world, they're humans. They're not creatures. This isn't another planet. Harry Potter takes place in our world, correct? Correct. Right. Yes. They're, they're in our world. Dursley, the uh, kid Dudley has a computer. Like, right. You know, this is... There's cars. There's things. Like, yes. Oh, there are definitely cars. It's not in some old past time. And it's also not fantasy in the realm of... Like alternate universe. On the universe. planet Borgar, right. there was a yeah. school named Hogwarts. No, that's kind of... In a lot of ways, that's almost kind of the whole point. This is a really big underpinning theme, is the fact that it exists in the same world. That's important. Yeah. Which is a great segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Okay. If the muggle world and the wizarding world are so separate, how come some wizards have no chill? Oh, my God. So I'm 99%. Why are they walking around in robes in the daylight? And then they're saying to Harry, 
what's up, man? Congrats, bro. It's so it's nice like to meet you. Can I get a picture real bus. quick? Yo, can I? I know you're busy. Can I get a real a picture real quick? Like, how come they have no chill? <gasps> I know. Like, dude, your entire world is going to be exposed. I know. But I don't know this. You know, as a new right, reader, at this right. point, I'm like, oh, so there's this like sneaky world of people, whoever they are, who know who right. this kid is, and he's kind of legendary. And I yes. wonder who they are. I wonder where they live. I wonder if they're human. Right. Are they really there? Or is Mr. Dursley just seeing them? Right. We don't right. know is any of just these nuts. It's hard to imagine that now because we all know so much. Right. I mean, I think that like the first chapter, even if, you know, if you can kind of remove anything you've learned from pop culture, even the first chapter, you're kind of like, oh, okay, what's, is this, is Vernon Dursley just losing his mind or what's going on? But then, you know, we get Dumbledore and McGonagall and Hagrid and we get th- that whole scene, which I definitely want to talk about. Um, but yeah, like poor little Harry, so bewildered, so bewildered. And there are a couple of moments like I really need to bless this child. Dear, sweet Harry. There's a really awesome moment that I want to bring up for a second. This is at the zoo. So this is in chapter three, The Vanishing Glass. And he's looking at the snake and he's kind of feeling bad for it. And it says, it was worse than having a cupboard as a bedroom where the only visitor was Aunt Petunia hammering on the door to wake you up. At least he got to visit the rest of the house. Like, I'm going to fucking cry. (laughs) Thank you for saying that because I really wanted to talk about how the author sets up his sense of empathy. And I think it's shown there with the snake and how he compares his life to the snake, true empathy, right? Not sympathy. All that must suck for him, but comparing it to his own life. But also his sense of humor shows his empathy. Like when um, Dudley first gets his school uniform and his little knocker stick, right? His 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 melting stick. His stupid little knickers and all that crap. (laughs) And his hat. Don't forget his hat. Harry's like, trying to keep from busting out laughing the first time he sees him like even through all of his trauma and all this stuff he still sees these people are so clueless yes they're such a joke which means he sees that they don't have a certain knowledge which shows a sense of empathy for other people that's comedy i think at its root comes from an empathetic place absolutely you know that i'm a huge fan of really subversive comics i love bill burr Richard Pryor is my favorite comedian of all time. And they say things that hit so close to home. And it's funny because if they didn't have an understanding, an empathetic understanding of how different everyone is in the world, then it wouldn't be funny. And you wouldn't believe that what they're saying is funny. And so I like how she sets that up. Very, very subtly, as a great author does, Sets these things in your mind. This is the character. This is how they think. This is how they act. This is their sense of humor. This is their sense of sympathy or empathy or caring. It's also a really cool commentary on, you know, I think pure behavioral psychology would say that we are only a product of the environment we're in. But that doesn't explain Harry. And it doesn't explain a lot of kids in the real world, too, you know, who are raised, I mean, like Harry's being raised by a family that operates solely out of fear, especially fear of the other. And Harry so fully already is embodying a very counter stance to that idea. He also has this wicked sense of humor, which is another thing I think we don't get in the movies as much as I would like. But like, Harry's got some sass. Sassy Harry is the best. So like, 
he's he comes into the kitchen. Aunt Petunia's dying his new uniform. He says, what's this? He asked Aunt Petunia. Her lips tightened as they always did if he dared to ask a question because she's the fucking worst. Your new school uniform, she said. Harry looked in the bowl again. Oh, he said, I didn't realize it had to be so wet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> fucking Harry. I love Harry. And I, this is something that's regularly said in the within the Harry Potter fandom. Is like, no one's favorite character of Harry Potter is ever Harry. <laughs> it's like, what a dork you'd be if you're like, oh, who's your favorite character in the series? And you're like, Harry Potter. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's just not something that's said. But I think that because of that, he can get a little underappreciated, especially when we're looking at sweet little 10, almost 11 Harry, who has not yet realized that he's this famous, great, you know, yada, yada, yada person and still realizes the ridiculousness of the situation he's in, still has a sense of humor, even though he's being abused, literally being abused to the point where the there's there's a statement about maybe it's due to the size of his cupboard, but he was very small and scrawny for his age. Like he's literally being starved and suffocated so much. He's made the suggestion is that he's maybe not even developed mentally physically where he needs to be which brings up the biggest missing gap in the whole series mm -hmm. the first 10 years of harry's life right he's dropped off as a baby right he's 10 years old letters are flying through the window yeah and weird things happen around that child sort of thing the yeah. thing at the zoo we get a feeling that this isn't the first time in 10 years that this child has been in a situation where weird stuff happened around him right and we don't get any of that Probably wasn't pretty, you know? I mean, the little slice that we get of it before we kind of jump into the quote-unquote real story is horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. They talk about him like he's not there. You know, they... It, he doesn't get as much food? He, he literally is underfed. Yeah. Compared to their tantrum-throwing beach ball of a son, not beach boy... <laughs> I keep thinking about Brian Wilson. <laughs> it's it's just Lying in bed, <laughs> just like Harry Potter did. No, now we're doing fucking um what's the name of that band? Bare Naked Ladies. Now right? we're doing Bare Naked Ladies. Oh God. The all bourbon. Right, all right reserve. Oh my god, the bourbon's getting to me. Um yeah, I mean like this scene in the zoo. You know, like, so from this perspective, pretending that I have no knowledge of what's yet to come, I mean, like, not only does he seemingly make glass vanish really without intending to, but he also can commune with other non-human creatures in some capacity, right? Well, she doesn't say, the books don't say, Harry tele whoa, hey now, Hello. telepathically communicated with the snake. All it says right. is Harry goes... Hey, bro, sorry you're locked up in this shit. And the snake is like, no doubt. And he's like, I see you're from Brazil. And the snake is like, no, read the sign again, dude. I was actually born in captivity. And Harry's like, oh, my burst. <laughs> I get it now. I see where you're at. But it's funny that this is another thing that she sets up between the differences between these two boys, yes. Dudley and Harry. Dudley is going, make him move. Yeah. Make him do something. Do something, do something for me. Yeah. This is boring. Entertain me. The first thing Harry thinks is, wow, it must suck to live here. Yeah. I wonder where you're from. 
I wonder what this other creature's origins are. I wonder what his story is. He approaches things in this empathetic way where this other kid just wants, what can you give me? Yes. What are you going me, to provide me, for me? Me, 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 me. Yeah. When Harry talks about, or when uh, JK talks about the gifts that Dudley has received over the years. Yeah. He received a TV, but he kicked it when his show was canceled. Mm-hmm. He received this thing, but he broke it when he got frustrated with this. He got a new bike and he knocked over Mrs. What's-Her-Name, who was on crutches. Mrs. Fig. He knocked over Mrs. Fig. Well, later, Harry has to stay with Mrs. Fig. And Harry thinks, Mrs. Fig isn't that bad. Yeah. He gets to watch TV. Yes. She's kind of cool. Like. Yeah. In Dudley's mind, he's like, oh, it's the stupid old lady on crutches. Let's knock her over with me motorbike or whatever. <laughs> with me motorbike. And, I don't think or, it was a motorbike. It's like a bicycle. You're, you're conflating But Harry is like, scene. yeah, Miss Fig ain't that bad, man. She's cool. Like, right. She lets me watch TV. She gives me little snacks. Like, she kind of makes me, I think of Miss Fig as Miss Small, who kept me when I was a little kid. <laughs> cool lady Who gave cookies. us Kool-Aid and cook. Kool-Aid and cookies. <laughs> this has been a, a part of... Amanda and Kevin Lore for many years. Kool-Aid and cookies. Yeah, we'll dive deeper into the uh, Chronicles of Miss Small. We shall. Uh, I love Mrs. Fig. I actually kind of feel like we sort of are Mrs. Fig in some ways. Like our house doesn't smell like cabbage, thank God. But we all know that house, don't we? Like we all know the house that smells like cabbage. It's dark. Why the fuck do so many houses smell like cabbage? <laughs> it's probably a brick ranch that has that hallway that our <laughs> friend Stuart talks about, that dark hallway in a brick ranch home (laughs) is it just are there and also like are there a lot of cabbage enthusiasts and we just happen to not be cabbage enthusiasts but like when you read this everyone relates they're like oh yeah that's just like so-and-so's house when i was growing up that smelled like cabbage what is this? I mean, honestly, I grew up eating a lot of cabbage, hun. Did you? and my grandma's house used to smell like cabbage but here's the the cabbage house cabbage is very very cheap True. Even okay, now, okay. it's like 50 cents a pound for a head of cabbage. You could feed okay. four people mad cabbage. Now I feel like I'm kind of like poverty shaming and I feel like kind of a dickhead. You're cabbage shaming. I'm cabbage. <laughs> I even had a cabbage patch kid and his name was Keith Garth. <laughs> and I adopted him and changed his name to Keith Wilson. Yeah, well, naturally. Yes, as you would. After Brian Wilson. <laughs> It all comes full circle. It all comes back. But Mrs. Fig, the reason she's us is like, all she does is talk about her cats. I feel like we kind of are that person. We stink up the house with vegetables and talk about our cats a lot. Like, most of the time. Like, we show people pictures of our cats when they have not asked to see those pictures. I feel like we are Mrs. Fig a bit. And also, Petunia calls Dudley Sweetums, and that's a, a really common pet name that we have for each other. I'm uncomfortable relating to Petunia Dursley. I'm fine with relating to Mrs. Fig. I am uncomfortable relating to Petunia. What are we going to do? We've got to stop calling each other sweetums. That'll never happen. No. That's not going to happen. So it's set up the major differences between uh, Harry and Dudley. Uh, One thing that I pointed out to you that was different from the movie, my first, oh my God, this is different from the movie. Oh, yeah. Is when the boa constrictor gets out of its tank. Yeah. In the movie, it says, thanks, which I thought was super funny. Yeah. I laughed the first time I saw it. In the book, 
He says, Brazil, here I come. Thanks, amigo. He's like, fuck this. I'm going back to Brazil where I came from. Thanks, homie. That shit is so funny to me. Yes. I thought that that was so funny that they, why wouldn't they put that in the movie? I know. They I'm, missed such a beautiful God. opportunity for a funny line there. This is undoubtedly the first of many examples that you're going to find as you journey through the book series and the corresponding movies. Because we are going to do episodes about the movies when we get to the end of the book. There are a lot of times when they miss these opportunities that would not take up significant amounts of time from a filmmaker's perspective. And I feel like in some cases, and I feel like this is one of them, it's this, we just think the audience isn't going to really get it, you know, kind of idea. Sort of like the, you know, philosopher stone versus sorcerer stone sort of thing. I mean, like here in the U.S., a lot of Potter fans are like, oh, the, you know, we Americans were so dumb that we don't know what a philosopher is. So they had to change the name. I mean, like these are two countries that speak the exact same language. Like, why would you change the name of the book? But I feel like in making the movies, they made a lot of decisions that they just wanted to simplify things as much as possible. But unfortunately, you lose these little quirks and you lose this nuance that's so beautiful about the books. And it's it's funny because the older I get and the more times I reread the series, the more I start to dislike the movies, which is a shame. Yeah. And keep in mind, I'm reading these books who were written for children at 40 years old. And so as a kid, if my mom was reading me the Harry Potter series, she would have done the snake's voice yeah. and made like a little hand gesture to look like the snake. And I would have cracked up laughing. Yes. I would have laughed for five minutes before I fell asleep that yeah. night. And that's a part of my background, too, is my mom read to us a lot when we were kids. Oh. And she would do the voices of the characters. Of course she did. And really bring us into it. So that was the first, my first moment of, damn, this is way cuter than the movie. It's like so adorable i love the snake um and i love that whole moment but you know it's actually kind of a perfect segue because another difference you mentioned to me when you were reading through these three chapters was your initial impressions of our dear majestic wonderful albus dumbledore 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 so let's get to the point where uh dumbledore shows up yeah um, he's got his little light disappearer thing. It's called a put outer. Put outer, right it puts now. Out lights. It's called some And he basically order. kills all the lights so nobody can see what's going down. Like they are kind of mafioso, like the wizarding guys. True, true. But I think what you were bringing up is, I told you recently after I'd read the first chapter. Wow, now I have my Dumbledore. So Dumbledore yeah. was played by two different actors in the movies. Yes. The first actor passed away, and then yes. they recast it as a second actor. They're both brilliant actors, and they're both nice to look at. Everyone in the movies is nice to look at. True. They're beautiful. They're Hollywood actors. Right, I mean, of course. everyone, even Sirius Black at his most haggard look in the movie, he's yeah. Gary Oldman. He's a gorgeous human God, being. God, I love Gary Oldman. And so to me, when I finally met my Dumbledore in my mind, when he showed up in the books, I was yeah. like, oh, that's what my Dumbledore looks like. And to me, he is much less majestic than he's presented in the movies. Yeah. I see him as someone that if you saw him walking down the street, you would be like, oh, that poor homeless guy right. with the three-foot beard. Right. I imagine him with gaunt cheeks. And I do see him with glasses, but I see him yeah. with oh, yeah. 
half broken, half taped up glasses. I also imagine his voice to be a lot more of... So in the movies, it's kind of this majestic Harry. Harry Potter, I'm the leader of a school. I'm a, I'm a school master. You're really only talking about Michael sort Gambon Dumbledore. Yes, right. but correct, yes. But my Dumbledore is more like this dude, <laughs> like Keith Richards, <laughs> that you'd run into who was just like walking down the street, listen, this baby <laughs> has to go live with these fucks because he's too famous. <laughs> Professor McGonagall, you finally showed up, you old cat hag you. That's how I... I hear him in my head, and that's yeah. how I see him, and that's how I smell it. And now Dumbledore's personal to me. Now he exists in my Harry Potter world. and As Keith Richards. He was the first character to really get me excited reading these first few chapters. For sure. As he should. I mean, I, I know that I have voiced to you probably with no prompting or, or no desire on your part to hear it, but that's what makes you so wonderful is that you still listen to me. My opinions on Dumbledore as an overall character. I have a feeling that if we tally up by the time we like reach the end of this journey, if we tally up how much time we spend talking about Dumbledore, it will be hours because this is not a simple guy. This is not a two-dimensional character. And so it's kind of great, you know, that you have this conceptualization of him. I will say, though, I disagree on the glasses because he's a wizard. He wouldn't have broken glasses. I don't know. <laughs> you, see, you think that he just does it Here's for the, the thing. Fuck all of it. Well, here's the thing is that the wizard, the wizarding world, what do I call these magician people, whoever the, the fuck they are? The, you can call it the wizarding world. The wizarding world. The people yeah. in the wizarding world, the magic people, yes, wield power that they don't always use, right? Okay. So stay with okay. me here. Okay, okay, I'm with Along you. the lines that they're kind of like mafia-ish in the way that they approach sending these letters to Harry. Oh, you move them up to the smallest room? To H. Potter, smallest room. We're still watching you, punk. Yeah. Oh, you sealed off the door? Here's one through the bathroom window, sucker. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. If they know where he is, if they see him, they could have made a wall disappear, scooped him up, True. and flown him away to this That's magical school. That's a really school. good point. They didn't yeah. have to keep messing with the Dursleys. Yeah. But they do. They choose to. It's a really and good so, point. And so, you know, I don't know whether he has, like, glasses or not, but if he did... He does. It would be because... Why does Harry have glasses? Freaking magician. Like, yeah, he's a wizard. Like, why now, couldn't they? This goes a bit deeper, though, because I so hear what you're saying. And I agree. I think there are a lot of times when these fixtures in the magical world are deliberately subversive, especially when it comes to the Dursleys. And this is not the last we'll see of that, an example of that. Yeah. But. The the eyesight thing is a little different because the this is kind of one of the limits of magic. I'm glad you brought this up because a lot of people will say, like, why the fuck does Harry have glasses? He's a wizard. You know, he couldn't he just fix his own eyesight? And that's my that's my like contrary Potterhead voice. Um, but you know, there are rules to magic. You can't fix everything, you know, and and I don't I do not believe this to be a spoiler. I wouldn't say this if to you, honey bun, if I thought it was. But, 
you know, there is a very famous line, I won't tell you who delivers it or who it's about, um, of no spell can reawaken the dead. So for instance, there's a limitation of magic. But yeah. also like, you can't make yourself taller. You can't make your, or, or I should say most people, um, can't all, make, you know, yeah. It, it kind of also goes back to, what would you do if you could have one wish in the world? I'd wish for a thousand more wishes. Well, you can't wish for a thousand more wishes. There are rules. It's that whole yes. thing of like, well, you could say that about anything. You could say, yes. why didn't the Jedi just, change vader's mind and make him not blow up leia's dad's planet like you could go down anything in the world oh yeah but you can't watch et and say this is bullshit bikes don't fly right exist i'm more than willing to live within suspension of disbelief the confines yes. of the story that we're reading for sure so back to dumbledore yes and so he lands in the neighborhood he pops um, up he pops up in the neighborhood We've already known that um, Vernon has, like, seen this cat reading a map and then <laughs> yeah. seen a cat looking at a street sign, which also shows you, first of all, did McGonagall really need to look at a map or a street <laughs> sign to know where she was going? Like, did she take a train there? McGonagall also has no chill. <laughs> did she really have to read a map? Or was it done on purpose? At the same time that he happened to be going to work, right? Yeah, like they're constantly messing you, with him. Yeah, they're constantly leaving things like let you know we're here, let you know we're always watching. Like yeah. they get some sort of joy out of kind of like poking and messing with the Dursleys. Yes, which is cool. And then when he shows up, it says in the book that he he takes his put outer and like a dozen streetlights go out. And it says, even if you lived there and looked out the window, you wouldn't know what was going on. Right. You wouldn't see a woman, a cat turn into a woman. You wouldn't see an old wizard in a robe. You wouldn't see a giant show up on a motorbike. Like, they cut the power to the place. So when they come to ask him for the money, nobody can freaking be there, you know, to see what the hell goes on. Leave the gun. Take the gun. Yeah, there's that kind yeah. of thing going on, which yeah. I think is really neat. For sure. For sure. So Dumbledore... Talks to McGonagall and is like, yeah, I thought that was you, silly cat girl. <laughs> and they kind of have a little debate about Harry, right? Yeah. They kind of yeah. get in a little disagreement about, like, is this okay to drop this kid off at these people's house? And True. McGonagall's kind of like, these people suck. I've been, wa I've been sitting on their front stoop as a cat watching them for two days, and they're awful human beings. Yeah, yeah. And the voice of goddamn reason. What is Dumbledore's yep. response to her? Dumbledore's response is essentially, we have to leave Harry here because he will be so famous, it'll go to his head. Which is, in my opinion... Or maybe, is it implied that it would be dangerous for him? I don't know that the implication is that there's any danger. I mean, really, the only time that Dumbledore goes into his logic here is, yes, surely... So famous that it w would be enough to turn anyone's head, he says. And to me, this is the first example. And I do understand that I, I'm operating with an entire series of knowledge. But this is not something you're naive about regarding Dumbledore, because I know we've had this conversation, actually. This is the first example of many of Dumbledore making very, very big decisions that have incredibly large consequences for other people because he believes it's 
the right thing to do or the, the most burden logical of leadership thing to do. the and sure heavy you know? is the crown kind absolutely. of absolutely and, and i agree and I don't want anyone to think, I, I truly do not believe Dumbledore is a villain. There are people in this fandom that believe that Dumbledore is the biggest villain of the series. I don't share that belief. I think it's more complicated than that, which is what's beautiful about this series. But this is one of those things where it's basically like, no, I believe that this is the right path to do this. There is more information on this later in the series that is maybe informing Dumbledore's decision here a bit, which actually brings me to something I really wanted to ask you. They start talking a little bit about, we get this you-know-who thing, right? McGonagall says, it's true, after all he's done, all the people he's killed, he couldn't kill a little boy. It's just astounding of all the things to stop him. But how in the name of heaven did Harry survive? We can only guess, said Dumbledore. We may never know. At this point in the story, and I'm not trying to say you should or shouldn't, do you believe that that's all he knows? No, because McGonagall's afraid to say his name. And he's like, just say his name, Voldemort. Yeah. His name's Voldemort. So that's the, the thing that leads to He has to this the, yeah. confidence from somewhere else and this information that no one else clearly has. And he's kind of like, hey, he's fine now. He's been neutralized. He's dead. He died trying to kill this kid. It bounced back on him. It's all good. Right. Right. There's but the kind kid's of a- going to be famous. Let's put him away. But you also kind of see that he's setting things up, that he's the puppet master. He is a puppet master. And I'm so glad you're seeing that so early on. Dumbledore is always thinking 15 steps ahead. He's not three steps ahead. He's 15 steps ahead of everyone else. And what I think you'll see very early on in the series is that the people who know Dumbledore well kind of know that. And they just sort of go, okay, you know, classic Dumbledore. You're the boss. Right, right, right. And McGonagall in this moment is, she's deferring to the boss. Now, she doesn't go quietly into that. She does resist. She argues with him. She, I think this is a really, really cool, very, very concise way that J.K. Rowling sets up the relationship between Dumbledore and McGonagall, that it's one of... You know, really, yeah, we're we're equals-ish, but Dumbledore's final word is kind of what the but McGonagall does doesn't just go, yes, master. You know, she she just she argues a bit with it. There's a moment with McGonagall that really disturbed me. And this is the first time I've ever really paid attention to it. She's talking about the wizards with no chill. She's talking about who I assume is Daedalus Diggle. You know, who's like, oh, well, she does say it's Daedalus Diggle doing the shooting stars and or she that she bets it was him. But I'm pretty sure it was Daedalus Diggle, who's also like the old man with no chill who like approaches Harry. Pretty sure that's the same guy. Um, I don't know. That He's that's like, bro, confirmed. can I get a picture? Oh, <laughs> right. my God. Oh, Mr. Potter. Yeah. Oh, my. You know, this old man. But she says, oh, yes, everyone's celebrating. All right. You know, she talks about like it's even the muggles have noticed something's going on. It was on their news. And she says, I heard it. Flocks of owls, shooting stars. Well, they're not completely stupid. They were bound to notice something. And I found myself feeling a little betrayed when I read this because I was like, wow, that's fucking judgy from McGonagall. They're not completely stupid. Now, I don't know if this is 
J.K. Rowling writing the first book not having completely fleshed out McGonagall as a character yet, or if this is just my fundamental consistent misunderstanding of who McGonagall is and what she stands for. But this seems like a really shitty thing for her to say. Or is it just a result of having that wizard privilege and having, it's kind of like the thing about if you could make yourself invisible. If you could make yourself invisible, would you steal stuff? Would you spy on your naked neighbor? Would you witness all these things? There's so much, there's so many, there's a different morality for people who can perform magic. And they see so much more of the world. And so I could see where it would be hard for them to not look at non-magical people as like, just bumbling through life, no clue that there's this entire world of three-headed dogs and wands and all this crazy stuff. Like, I didn't really take it as like, oh, she's dumb. I just kind of, or she thinks that um, muggles are dumb. I mean, the fact that there's this term for non-magic people already gets problematic. There's all this othering type of thing going on. Yeah. But it didn't really stick out to me that much. And so I wonder if this is maybe the the most stark example that we've encountered so far of someone who's read the whole series versus your fresh eyes on it. Because I'm willing to bet, and we're going to stick a pin in this and revisit it later, much later. I, I will remember, I promise. I'm willing to bet by the end of the series, if not far before, you will also be very disturbed by this statement. I think you will. And I don't want to like put... I don't want to put an opinion in your head. You know, I'm going to revisit this and want to hear your legit opinion on it. But I think the Potterheads who may be listening, who know what's to come and the basis of a lot of the bad stuff, maybe have been, and I just have never encountered a discussion about it, really disturbed by this and feeling like this is really counter to McGonagall's actions later in the series. And... And I get it. You know, like this was a book that J.K. Rowling tried to get published many, many, many times before it was. She had no reason to believe she had a whole seven book series ahead of her, you know, and an eight eight movie Harry Potter franchise and two more Fantastic Beast movies thus far. So I give it the benefit of her just kind of not really knowing exactly what McGonagall was about just yet. Well, I also think that it's more exposition because now it's easy for you to say this is not part of McGonagall's canon personality. Yeah. She's not, you don't know who McGonagall is. She doesn't give you any information on her. She uses her to give this exposition of, oh, there's this world of wizards and there's this world of non-wizards and our world doesn't see the wizard world and the wizard world knows that they don't see it. I think it it's more like JK is just setting up how things move, how there's these two different True. realities going on at the same time. So it's like someone has to say that. It's just the way it's put. I, I just have a really big problem with it. And like, I can't get past it. And it really bothers me. <laughs> it really does. So we end up being visited by our third major character. Yeah. Which the only, is Hagrid. Hagrid. The only one who is behaving appropriately in this connotation and it's funny so it says he drops out of the sky on a motorcycle like you hear the motorcycle but he doesn't come rumbling down the street it literally just (laughs) lands on the sidewalk which is instantly funny because i'm thinking 
as a new reader trying to read with fresh eyes, I don't know anything about how their magic works or anything. I'm thinking, why do magical people, why do they have to read maps? Why do they have to ride (laughs) motorcycles? Why do they have to like go through all of this stuff? Which is super funny. Yes. Uh, You don't get a lot about Hagrid. He stops. He's clearly like really devoted to this child. See, I just, I think you get a ton about who Hagrid is in this moment. This is where I disagree because, you know, we've got this weird conversation going back and forth. Like, it's all the the wizards are celebrating and Diggle has no chill. And, you know, is it really true that Voldemort couldn't kill a baby and that James and Lily are dead? And I feel like Dumbledore and McGonagall are having a, a you maybe 85% pragmatic conversation. And Hagrid's the only one who steps in and is really really goddamn emotional about what's going on. You know, McGonagall refers to the Potters as James and Lily. She clearly knows them. We don't know at this point the extent of her relationship with them, existent or non-existent. But I feel like you do get the sense that there's a bit of a detached kind of thing for Dumbledore and McGonagall. Well, it's time to drop the boy off at the place. Right. Well, his his, uh, aunt and uncle are assholes. Well, it's fine. It's all for the greater good. Let's drop the baby off. And then here's Hagrid, who's mm-hmm. like, I can't even talk about it. Like, oh, my God, this yes. baby. Like, I mean, so little. I don't know. And, like, I I may be completely misremembering this, but I do not think Hagrid brings up Voldemort once in his interactions with them. His primary focus is not, ding dong, the witch is dead, like everyone else's. His primary focus is, this poor child is now an orphan. And these two people are dead. And isn't that horrible? This brings us to, you keep talking about, there are people celebrating. They're being obvious. Wizards with no chill. Yeah. Now, right before his birthday, wizards start also having no chill. Mm. So here we are, or not after his birthday. So 10 years after Harry's dropped off as a kid to this home, 10 years later, we see this again. Wizards with no chill. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's you, Harry Potter. Is it now, if you can't answer this because it's going to spoil something, that's fine. But why these rumblings 10 years later? Is it because everyone knows, wait, Harry Potter would have been. Right, right. Oh my God. I think that's it's like a- when Kesha turned 21. Everyone people knew. were Kesha well, I'm is- saying fans of Kesha, all six of them, <laughs> were probably like, oh shit, Kesha's turning 21 in a month from now. I bet she's gonna get lit. Jesus Christ. And so I think that the wizarding world is like, oh my god, wouldn't Harry Potter be turning 11? I think he's coming back. But I don't know if that's part of like some other major prophecy that's going on or whether so, they know something that I don't know or the what return I will of say is, Voldemort or what? What I will say is it is absolutely 100% reasonable for you to assume that people in the wizarding world, especially in England, know that 11 is a pretty big age and 11 is okay. a pretty big year. Seems like it. Yeah, that's that's reasonable to to know. I also did not think we would be bringing up Kesha. In our premiere episode, it was was like, really, no one expects Kesha. Suddenly, Kesha. I have a good Kesha story for you off air. Oh, God. Okay. Well, I'll remind you. Uh, You know, Hagrid's uh, leather boots were like baby dolphins. And his hands were the size of trash can lids. My favorite description 
of a sing- like probably any character in the series, by the way. Like what a strange, strange woman J.K. Rowling is in the best way. So in an interest of time, yes. let's blast through the rest of these chapters. Basically what happens is kids dropped off, the kid gets older, envelopes start coming addressed to Harry, they're yes. flying through the window, yep. they're watching us, Vernon goes totally crazy, Absolutely paranoid. insane. No post them, on Sundays. Takes him to, and he says, he says, no post on Sundays, no more damn letters. And he curses. Right. Damn. Curses in the in chapter three. You're like, Heavens whoa, adults cursing. So he takes him to this seedy hotel. They get letters to Harry in the shitty motel. <laughs> Love the wizards come to school. <laughs> and at this point, Harry still hasn't seen a letter or what it says. Right. He doesn't know the content of the letter. And then he moves him out on a rowboat to this island. Completely lost his mind at this yes, point. Yes, completely. Here's another really funny moment that I think. <laughs> jk put in to show how much of a moron vernon is it was cold out in their little cabin right and all they brought to eat was four bags of cheap chips each and 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 i think a banana and like and four bananas it's like they each got like a banana and a bag of chips but it says as it it were it's like vernon tried to start a fire but the potato (laughs) chip bags (laughs) believe it or not were not enough to sustain Shockingly. a warm fire. Shockingly. Of course he didn't bring wood, and there's no. not wood on a rock in the middle no. of the ocean. This is also the same oh, guy. Oh, my God. This, I'll just set these potato chip bags on fire. We'll be warm and now. Damn it. They're gone. Kevin, they the, av- so Kevin the avid camper is so triggered right now. Oh, <laughs> He's God. so triggered. This is the man that, like, six pages back tried to nail the mail slot up with a piece of fruitcake. Why is he using a piece of fruitcake? <laughs> she for just the love constantly of God. shows this guy's such an idiot. Just an idiot. He also, by the way, two paragraphs later, grabs a hammer. He does own a hammer. He just didn't think to pull out the goddamn hammer when the <laughs> fruitcake was because, in his hands. I think it's because the author wants us to feel the way that Harry feels. I think which that's is, very true. I have got to get the hell away from these people. These people as are the literal worst. So it's yeah. about to be his birthday. And Harry's laying there on the most ragged blanket on the floor. On the floor. Right in this little cabin. There's a storm raging around them at the ocean. Yeah. And he's counting down his birthday. And he's like, oh, man, 30 minutes is my birthday. The way that, like, as an adult, we kind of do that. We're like, "Uh uh-oh, it's about to be midnight. Let's pop some champagne. It's my birthday. And then he counts down to the minute. And then he counts down to the second. And he's like, 10 Nine, what the hell's that sound outside? Eight, seven, <laughs> things are really loud outside. Six, yeah. five, this is kind of creepy. Three, two, one, knock, knock, knock. Boom. And that's as far as I've read. And that's as far as Kevin has read. Now, I know, yes. because I've seen the mo- the first movie, who's going to show up? It's Haggard with the birthday cake and all that stuff. Yes. But as a reader, this is where I stopped. And if I'd never seen the movie, Mm -hmm. if I didn't know anything, all I know about Haggard is this guy that dropped off the baby. Mm -hmm. If I was watching, if I was reading this with a pure, untainted mind, I would be like, who in the hell (laughs) is at the door? Right. Is it going to be a bunch of letters floating in? But what a beautiful cliffhanger. Oh. Three, two, one. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Holy crap. If you don't want to turn that next page, right. you're not a human being. Absolutely. Yeah. 
you're, you're a soulless fuck. Yeah. If Who you don't found them. Right. Who found them out there? The like, rock. What's it going to be? And what is Vernon going to do? We're going to move on to our, our <laughs> wonderful Professor Kevlani. You know, he doesn't really know who Sybil Trelawney is at this point, or, or he knows very little about Trelawney. I know that it's from the movies. It's Emma Thompson in Correct. thick glasses. Yes. And she's adorable and brilliant. That's she all She is adorable and brilliant, as Emma Thompson always is. But this segment is called... Professor Trevlani's Prophecy. So this is where I'm going to ask you, this can be series long, this can be one or two chapters away, but give me something that you think is going to happen. Doesn't that have to I be anything already huge, know that you from don't the movies already know from the movies is going to happen. Doesn't have to be a huge revelation, doesn't have to be a huge plot point. I think these are going to be really different from week to week. I think that eventually, by the end of the series, we're going to get some payoff where the Dursleys get their comeuppance. You think so? Where they get theirs. You think so? It's kind of like in The NeverEnding Story, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies of all time. Sure. The bullies bully the kid at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Bastion. He hides in the bookstore and all this stuff. And then the movie goes on. You never see the bullies again. The bullies are there to sh- to set up what our heroes had to deal with, just like the Dursleys are there to show what Harry has to deal with. But at the end, Bastion comes back, and he's on the Luck Dragon, and he scares them <laughs> into the same trash can that he was thrown into, so and poetic. they get theirs, and there's this poetic justice. So one of my prophecies, mm-hmm. my prophecy for today, looking into my crystal ball, is that before the end of the series, we'll see the Dursleys get theirs. And I hope that they do. So our final, final place today is a place we're going to revisit every week. And arguably, in my opinion, the most important place we're going to visit every week. Each one of us is going to share with each other a lesson that we've taken from this particular section. In this case, it's Sorcerer's Stone chapters one through three. That we are going to do our very best to bring it into our marriage. I'm going to let my my little sweet cheeks over there go first. I think I learned this lesson from, surprisingly of all places, the Dursleys. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to remember no absolutes. I think that the Dursleys live, people who live in fear, live in a world of absolutes. I would never go to Las Vegas. Yeah. I would never drive a red car. <laughs> I would never do this. Yeah. I think that as we move forward in our relationship and in our marriage, that we should keep open minds about okay. who we are, mm-hmm. about what we're about, mm-hmm. and about who other people are. Now, we have conversations all the time. We spoke earlier today about, I have no interest in going to Hawaii. Right. You don't really have an interest in going to Hawaii. I don't. But I don't think that we should ever get in the habit of saying... We would never go to Hawaii. Yeah, I agree. Because I bet it's amazing. When you think in absolutes, when you think like the Dursleys, not only does it make you a closed-minded person, Mm -hmm. but it also makes your world very small. It makes your... I don't want my entire world to be privet drive. Yeah, me neither. I want our world and our marriage to be filled with as many people and experiences and things as possible. So... My lesson from the Dursleys for our marriage is flexibility. 
I think I let's um, let's not deal in absolutes. Let's be flexible and move in love and acceptance mm-hmm. and not judgment. I absolutely love that. And you know, it's interesting because my lesson also came from the Dursleys. And, you know, I, I don't know why we, we both went there because we also did have like the magical beings that we've met in these three chapters as well to draw from. But both of us went to the Dursleys. And I feel like the Dursleys for us, for both of these lessons, represented things that we want to not do. And I am perfectly fine with being nothing like the Dursleys. So what I notice about their marriage is they have pretty similar value systems. They have pretty similar belief systems. They seem to kind of back each other up. It just so happens that what they back each other up about is shitty. It's all shitty behavior. I also find it really difficult to believe that in their years of marriage, one of the two has not had a single moment of going, maybe putting this child in a cupboard is not the the best move. You know, maybe this isn't the way. I find it really difficult to believe that no one's had that moment of clarity. And so what I take from this into our relationship is obviously I, I very much pride ourselves in being nothing like these fucking people. At the same time, I think it can be very easy when you're in a relationship with someone and you love someone. And I firmly believe this goes both ways. Sometimes you go, I've got to have their back no matter what. And I don't think that's being the best partner. I think that being the best partner for someone is saying, hey, that thing that you did or that thing that you said, I don't think that's really in line with what you value or I don't think that's really the move or I don't think that's really kind. Or is this in line with what we value? We value as a couple. And I think like we're all human. We all do shit like that, right? We all say mean things. We all gossip. We all, you know do things to some degree or another that are underhanded or dishonest or whatever. And I think that being the most responsible true partner to someone is saying, hey, I'm going to hold you accountable for that right now. I'm not going to punish you for that, but I'm going to bring it up to you and I'm going to notice it to you. I'm going to remind you that we don't live like the Dursley. Exactly. And you're going to remind me that we don't live like the Exactly. There's times all the time where I'll come home from work and I'll say, so-and-so was such an a-hole today, blah, 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 blah. And instead of you saying, yeah, I'm sure they suck, you'll say, I wonder how stressed out they are at their job. Right. Or have you talked to them about it? Or do you think it's because of this? Do you think it's because of that? It's worth sometimes challenging your spouse, your mate, your partner um, and this work, this is also true in friendship of any relationship. Yeah, it's yeah. worth challenging the other person to stop and look at: is are we still operating on the same value system? Right. Because if we're not operating on the same value system, then we need to redefine what that value system is. Like, I'm sure that you know a Nazi couple probably gets along just fine <laughs> right sure but i don't think that there's a lot of exploration there i don't probably think there's not. a lot of intimacy or deepness because it's like hey we agree on everything we agree that our way is always the right way and we agree that we will just smash our moral compass into oblivion to serve our own egos absolutely and so as we go through life and our egos roar and we make all the stupid mistakes that we make every day as human beings. Yes. 
part of our marriage and part of the reason that we have agreed to spend the rest of our lives with another person is because we've found someone who matches our values and we've committed to a plan to constantly try to return to that foundation of values, even at cost of the pain that it you have to go through to realize that you're wrong. Definitely. That was very well said. Thanks, honey. Anytime. Well, that's all we have for you this week. If you're enjoying The Fox and the Foxhound, please don't forget to subscribe and take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Instagram at The Fox and the Foxhound, Twitter at Fox and Foxhound, no thes, and check out our website, thefoxandthefoxhound.com for show notes, more info about us, and eventually some sweet, sweet merch. Email us questions for the show at thefoxandthefoxhound at gmail.com. And for extra house points, send us an MP3 of you asking your question and we may play it on the show. If you'd like to help our baby podcast grow into a big and strong Hagrid-sized podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash thefoxandthefoxhound. No amount of support is too small, and we have some great things planned for our membership tiers in the near future. And finally, special thanks to Judson Hurd, who composes the music for our show. You can find out more about him and listen to more of his incredible scores at judsonherd.com. That's J-U-D-S-O-N-H-U-R-D.com. We'll see you next week. As we say down here in North Carolina, y'all take care now.